This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Each week, poet and theologian Patrick Otuma hosts the popular podcast Poetry Unbound, during which he reads a single poem and then offers short, unhurried reflections on its form and meaning. On this episode, Otuma joins associate editor Griffin Olenek for a conversation about his new book of poems and prayers entitled Being Here, Prayers for Curiosity, Justice, and Love. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. So, Griffin, it's good to see you here. Thanks for having me, Dominic. So you got to speak with Patrick Otuma. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation? Sure. So I've been a fan of his for many years. I was first introduced to him, as I think a lot of people were, by an interview he did with Krista Tippett on the On Being podcast. He has an interesting biography. He's Irish and grew up Catholic. He studied for the priesthood and he left the church. But he's still very much interested in prayer, spirituality, and religion. What I like about Atuma is that he thinks of himself as being free from the burden of belief. He's also gay and has suffered a lot for that. His book, Being Here, is short. It grows out of a residency he did at the Church of the Heavenly Rest here in New York City during the pandemic in 2020. It includes a couple of essays, but the main thing is that it consists of is 31 days of prayers that he says you can use however you like. And I did right in January, and I really enjoyed it. Anyway, our conversation began with his reading a few of these prayers as a jumping off point for a discussion of other topics, including women and LGBTQ people in the church, synodality, and the idea of exile. Griffin, you were able to go see Patrick Reed, I believe, at a recent event in New York. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. He spoke at the Catholic Worker. He read poems from his new book, which is called Kitchen Hymns. It's not out yet, so no recording was allowed, but the audience was packed. There were over 100 people. And many of the poems are funny, they're irreverent, but they're also very profound. And I felt like he's really tapping into post-institutional spirituality that I think that a lot of our audience will resonate with. Yeah, great. Okay, well, why don't we take a listen? Thanks, Griffin. Thank you. Padre Kutuma, thanks so much for being on the Commonwealth Podcast. My pleasure. So for a book of prayers, being here had something of a strange genesis. I should say it's a book of prayer, but it's also not really a book of prayer. It's quite a bit more, in some ways quite a bit less. You have a few essays in the book, and one of the ones that stood out for me was the one about the form of the collect. That's a form of prayer, an ancient form of prayer, and you write very movingly about it. Could you talk a bit about that, how you came to discover collects, and why you chose that form for some of the most creative poem prayers throughout the book? I read about collect, I suppose, when I was 19 or 20. I've always loved poetry. I grew up in an environment where we were learning two poems off by heart every week from the age of five to 17, one in English, one in Irish. And so poetry has been a part of the everyday for me for as long as I can remember. And I always loved learning about form. And when I was 18 or 19 or whenever it was, I just read one paragraph that described what a collect was and said it has five folds. You know, the opening section addresses the one who's being prayed to. And then the second section, or I call them folds, the second fold says a little bit more about the one being prayed to. The third section names one single desire. The fourth unfolds that desire and says, why are you asking for this? Why am I asking for this? And then the final is a laudatory doxology, an amen in the name of Christ our Lord or whatever. I call that a bird of praise. I like the idea that somehow something is 
taking flight. But also I like the idea of a present moment occurrence in a collect, in a prayer. And so people who go to the Episcopal alien churches will be familiar with the collect for purity, Almighty God. It's the opening one. And the second fold, the one that says a little bit more about the one to whom you're praying, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. The third fold of the collect is the single request, cleanse the intent of my heart by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And then the fourth fold is the one that says, why of all the many things you could ask for today, did you choose this one thing? And in the collect for purity, it says that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. And then the fifth fold, what I call the bird of praise, finishes off with, through Christ our Lord, amen. And that simple fold, five folds, unfolds, they reveal something of a conversation, an intimate expression of the interpersonal lyric between an I and a you. And the naming of the you in the opening, and Hagar is the first person in Hebrew Bible to give God a name. And so I think any iteration of naming God from the circumstances of your life is always an anarchic naming. There's God is always made and remade and made again and made anew in a person who's looking at their circumstances and thinking, in light of this, what name do I wish to call upon and call down and create? And so even in the opening, fold, something of being attentive to the secularity of your circumstances is present. I love that word anarchic. And in many ways, this is a very anarchic book of prayer, which is perfect for me at the time <laughs> of my life. You've got a great a little note that you include in the introduction where you say, feel free to take this book and use it however you want, rewrite the prayers, cut some. And I felt very authorized. I said, okay, I started reading this in the new year. As a kind of, I was like, all right, it's going to be a new year's resolution. I'm going to do my prayers on the subway. We'll see how this goes. But I really felt myself drawn into it. One of the earliest colleagues that, that you've written is the one to Joseph, man of dreams. I love that one. And I love the line that says, what you had was good. What was asked of you is better. Something to that extent. I'm wondering, could you read some of your favorite colleagues? I'll read that one. I really like Joseph. I think he's a very interesting character. He's narrated mostly in the gospel according to Matthew. So here's the one to Joseph. Joseph, man of dreams. In your dreams, you were willing to let your righteousness be made even more right. What you thought was good wasn't good enough, and you changed course. In our decisions, help us listen to the dreams that know better, that go deeper, that push through, because we need to know better. Go deeper. Push through. Amen. What I love about the way that Joseph's narrated in the Gospel of Matthew is that he, he's confused by the circumstances and the strange story of this pregnancy, certainly the way it's narrated by Matthew. And he's trying to do the right thing. And he has a dream that says, there's a better way to do this. And I think what a fascinating understanding of wisdom. Ignatius of Loyola says, the only good decision you can make is a good decision between multiple good options. You know, if there's a bad option and a good option, well then, <laughs> it's, not, it's not complicated to know what you should do. It's not do. really a choice, is it? It's not a choice. You can just choose to make the bad option if you want, and I've certainly done that plenty of times. But I love the idea of not being caught into the binary of the bad and the good, and instead thinking, in any circumstance in life, what are the multiple good options here? And therefore, which one seems like a wise choice now? And I think the same when it comes to 
group dynamics or conflict as well. If there's only a choice between the good and the bad in a conflict situation, well then we haven't treated the imagination with enough integrity. There needs to be a way to say, let's put four or five interesting ideas on the table and then hear what happens, rather than let's have a dignifying one and an insulting one. God, that's boring and it just contributes to deep, deeper distress. Another one, I really like this one from the Gospel according to Mary. And the text says, Peter says to Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the other women. Tell us the words of the Savior that you remember when we do not, since we did not hear them. Mary replied, What is hidden from you, I will tell you. That's verse 10 to 11 of the Gospel according to Mary. It's kind of bonkers what she says. It's impenetrable, Gnostic, really. But what's so interesting is how penetrable and recognizable what happens afterwards is the disciples hear her and then one of them says that can't be true because Jesus wouldn't have said that to a woman and then you go oh look here's the world unfolding and then one of them says well except I think maybe he did and then they're, they're all upset you know it's fascinating and even you get an indication of it in the words of Peter to Mary we know that the Savior loved you more than the other women <laughs> rather than more than us the other people Anyway, here's the collect. Wise Mary, you were the first to the scene of the resurrection, the first to witness what we still struggle to witness. You saw what was hidden. Help us live and hold this hidden heart of things inside us, giving us life even though we cannot grasp, bringing us together from isolation to community. Amen. That's what's so interesting about the Gospel of Mary is that in the midst of the Gnosticism, Mary's voice continues to appeal to a kind of a unity of congregation amongst the people in conversation, where she's saying, listen to what you're saying and listen to what you're implying about your own thinking while you enact misogyny and the denial of the possibility of a woman having a brain and justify that in in abstract theologies. The text veers from wild Gnosticism to complete demonstrations of the denial of women's personhood altogether. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about the literature of that gospel. So I wanted something here that would honor her because she's worthy of honor. Well, I'm glad you brought up Mary because, and especially that collect to me is indicative of so many of the other ones throughout the book, where we're focusing on figures who are actually at the center, theologically, spiritually, of what's happening, but whom history, officialdom, our own prejudices have relegated to the margins. And we see Jesus in many of your collects acting like them. And I love that. You give us angry Jesus, you give us weeping Jesus. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about the figure of Christ that emerges from this book. I mean, one of the best things for me when it comes to thinking about the literature of the Gospels is not to believe that Jesus is God. It genuinely means that I look at the text and have I've spent many years studying the text and writing academic essays about it. I did a master's in applying literary criticism to the Gospels and wrote eventually a thesis looking at the Gospel of Mark, but did academic work on them all. And I have often found that I'm speaking for myself. I would never say that this should be a burden 
on anyone else, but I've often found that belief gets in the way of curiosity. That for me, the way belief landed was an anxiety about getting the doctrine right or getting the comprehension right. And that got in the way of me allowing myself to ask the kind of questions I like to ask about literature, which is why and what else happened and what else was going on and what do I think about that? It felt like to me, and in many ways this came from relatively, I would say, domestically violent experiences of charismatic Christianity, ecumenical charismatic Christianity, that there was such a denial of the brain and of the imagination, unless you were using the brain and the imagination to get to what was already decided was correct. And that was oppression, ultimately. And I don't only mean that in, in the predictable ways about misogyny and homophobia and Protestants, <laughs> to create three categories, but I mean it in many other ways too, just about asking a good question about plot and character and miracle. So I suppose I stepped away from the burden of belief and stepped into, therefore, the wildness of the literature and allowed myself to find myself lost in the wildness of the literature. And therefore, I have deep respect for Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know what I'd say to him if I met him. I wonder if I'd like him. He was a complicated character. And of course, there's at least four iterations of him. The Jesus of Mark, I'm not convinced, would have gotten on very well with the Jesus of Matthew. Jesus of Mark was a fairly, he'd give you a short shrift. He has impatience in him. The Jesus of Matthew never shuts up. These long sermons. He's got it all in his head. Oh my God. <laughs> the Jesus of John arrives in and says, hello, you know, <laughs> my name is Jesus. You can call me God. And alongside that is profoundly emotional, deeply emotional. Jesus wept. Do you see joy in him? He doesn't say, love your enemies in the Gospel of John. He says, love your friends. What an amazing, grounded character this Jesus of John is. And the Jesus of Luke is a political revolutionary who disappoints all the people who follow him, which just is a lesson in many ways in the courage and loneliness of leadership. And to, to look at the literature about this character, I find hugely enlivening, having stepped away from the demands of belief. And I still stay next to the halls of curiosity, but I'm just not under its requirements anymore. I still think about these texts every day. That has helped, I think, a, a certain chosen exile has helped the form a sustaining relationship with these texts. I'm wondering if you could say more about your understanding of exile. How do you find yourself at home in it? The Irish word for exile is djorjicht, which means to be in a state of tearfulness. And one of the Hebrew terms for exile is gala, which means naked. Um, Exile is in a certain sense when somebody else has decided that the place that you have understood to be home will not be home for you. So exile is usually not a, a choice you make. And even if you do finally have a choice for that, it's usually because you've been forced into that choice. Otherwise, it's just migration. And I, I tried to belong. I'm not naturally somebody who likes to be on the outside of things. I, like, I wanted to belong. I was a daily mass for a very long time, loved the sacraments, was going along to charismatic 
meetings where people would be saying all kinds of shit about God and the devil and exorcism and gay people and taking notes and trying to understand and taking stuff that people simply made up far too seriously. I was spending time in the wrong rooms, clearly, but I didn't know that there were other rooms to go to. And that was too much, really. I was put through three exorcisms for being gay and then told because they hadn't worked I should go to reparative therapy. I was living with a charismatic ecumenical Christian community in Dublin and didn't really have many other options as to where to live. And so when I was told that unless I went there, I would need to leave where I was living, it, I didn't have choices to exercise. I just did what I was told I needed to do in order to stay where I was living and working. And that was a certain kind of torture where I was being the, the pressure of change and the pressure of bearing the unbearable was being put on the one who, whose integrity was being denied. And as years went by, I suppose I, I wanted to study closely these texts. I did a pontifical degree in theology and did very well at it. Not just because I wanted to study in the belly of the beast. There's a lot to theology that I love. But I did want to find a way to voice my own integrity, having been in rooms where people would not think that there was someone who was gay in the room, or would not admit <laughs> that there was somebody who was gay, or somebody who was trying to stop hating himself for being gay in the room. I think lots of rooms are quite satisfied if there's a self-hating gay in the room, because you can just justify people who want to justify hating gay people. And so... I think the only option that I found available to me, if I wanted to have integrity, was to recognize that actually I am in exile. I don't, mean, I don't mean that in any terrible way, but it is to say, well, either I just walk away from everything, or I take a very small bag and have a copy of the Gospels in it. And that's what I've done. So I don't belong to the church. Church doesn't belong to me. And much and all, as some people won't say, oh, of course you do, because the church, whatever. I think, well, the church is a structure too, and organizes itself as such. And the church has responsibilities. And if the church claims to value truth, well, then the church has a burden of truth-telling for the burdens it's put upon all kinds of groups of people, the largest of which, of whom, is women. And so I'm fairly uninterested in small corners of the church saying, oh, you belong, it's grand. I, that doesn't interest me because it doesn't demonstrate integrity or responsibility. People in senior leadership of any organization know that they've got work to do. I've led organizations. And when something comes, when you're in a situation like that, the aim isn't to say, well, it wasn't me. You're not paid to do that. You're actually paid to say, it was us. Because you're, you're in a situation of responsibility. We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with Patrick Otuma in a minute. I'm Claudia Avila-Cosnahan, Director of Mission and Partnerships at Commonweal. One thing I love about Commonweal is our spirit of curiosity. It shapes everything we do, from religion to politics to culture and the arts. Consider becoming a Commonweal associate today. Just visit commonwealmagazine.org forward slash donate. Your gift helps support everything we do including this podcast. Now let's get back to the conversation. I want to pick up on that, what you just mentioned, that you have led organizations. I'm thinking of the Corrymeela community in Northern Ireland. I want to put that 
in conversation with one of the essays that you closed the book with, which is towards spirituality of conflict. What do you mean by spirituality of conflict? Well, I benefit from the luxury of being able to use the word conflict without speaking about violence. I think of Gaza and Israel at the moment, and Ukraine and Yemen, and where, of course, the luxury that I am, the linguistic luxury that I'm exhibiting is far from daily reality. So, but even in the circumstances where a community is thriving, conflict is present. And one of the things I think is very interesting in the opening or the second iteration of the poem of the creation of the world, where the God character says of the Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. I think there's something psychologically insightful about whoever put that line in. So every iteration of human community, whether that's one person or two people or two million, and even when they're flourishing, there's going to be conflict. And so therefore, I think it's worthwhile imagining what spirituality means in that context. Because the idea that we will live a conflictless life is naive and dangerous. And so therefore, it's worthwhile having a spirituality of conflict. I don't mean the spirituality of violent conflict, although unfortunately that is probably necessary. And by spirituality, I'm interested in the idea of thinking of the etymology of the word spirituality coming from spirare, meaning breath, aspiration, aspire, inspirational, something that allows you to breathe. And so therefore, what does it mean to breathe in conflict as opposed to suffocate? And that, that interests me. And it seems like a necessary skill. And I think we all have it. We all live in conflict. I want to not be frightened of the word conflict. I want to find ways to do the tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction that I can to, in the hope that violent conflict would end. But conflict too is, this, is one of the birthplaces of art and one of the birthplaces of innovation and collaboration. And therefore, I think it's worthwhile imagining it as part of the human condition, that kind of conflict and thinking about what a spirituality, a practiced spirituality, a practiced breathing might look like in the context of it. Well, how has that unfolded in your life, either at Corimila or, or now? Well, part of it, it comes back a little bit to what we said earlier on about having multiple good options on the table. If you create conflict in a room where people might have different points of view and say, well, here's the right point of view and here's the wrong point of view. Well, on many levels, you've created conflict. Or if in the room you say, well, this half of the room all believes the following and the other half of the room obviously completely disagrees. That's probably not true because even there's all kinds of iterations of agreement or disagreement or curiosity, even in seemingly opposing groups. And one of the things that can be very interesting if opposing groups can bear it is to be in a room with each other where they discuss their intra-group conflict, not their inter-group conflict where group A says, actually, here's what we disagree with amongst ourselves. And then suddenly group B is thinking, what I do? <laughs> suddenly I can't think they all think the same. Typically you imagine, I've heard this, you imagine that the group that you disagree with are all uniform, whereas my own group demonstrates subtleties. <laughs> but that can go both ways. And so a spirituality of conflict comes from, what's my imagination of the other? And do I imagine that they all believe the same? And if so, that might justify my hatred towards them or my vengeance towards them. So that's a demonstration of a spirituality of conflict, is in the imagination you have of the other and in the imagination about what negotiation or dialogue is going to look like when everybody agrees with me. 
or when I convince them that they're all bastards, or when, how can you nurture the imagination to say, maybe I have something to learn, and maybe I could voice my grief, and maybe I could say to them what I say about them. These are all practices. Peace is not easy, and anybody, I think, who thinks that peace is middle of the road, sitting on the fence, vague, both siderism hasn't been in a room of negotiation. Typically, you were saying what almost seems impossible to say to the other, to the other. And it is painful and brutal and courageous. And the idea is to find a way where there's a demonstration of a way through where what seems to be impossible and unimaginable becomes imaginable in some kind of cordiality that occurs as an event between people who you would think shouldn't be in the room with each other, but they need to be in the room with each other, because unless they are, what hope and hell do we have of the kind of peace that's needed? Yeah, as you speak, Patrick, I'm reminded of the term that's become kind of in vogue in Catholic circles, which is synodality, right? Which you'll probably, you'll know comes from journeying together, right? I'm wondering, looking at this from exile, as you say, or watching these debates unfold within the Catholic Church, especially around gay people, I'm thinking of fiducia supplicans that just came out about blessings of gay couples and the conflict and almost threats of schisms that that's provoked. How do you think about that in, in context of this spirituality of conflict that, that we've been describing? Well, I think the practice of synodality has been long coming, and I really appreciate and applaud the people who have given decades of their life for millimeters of progress. Mm -hmm. I have chosen not to be involved in that because I'm interested in art, not in that kind of level of discourse, which isn't to say that I think that level of discourse is unnecessary. I think it's vitally necessary. And I do applaud people who've done that. There's so much fear, I think, in gatherings like that. Fear to not appear like we're changing the great inheritance of faith. Often, imaginations of the past are much more conservative than the past was. I see when people say, let's get back to the way things were, it's an invention of the way things were that's actually a justification of stagnation in the present moment. Back to when family values were present. Let's look at what family values were like in the past. Horrific, domestic violence justified, circumstances that people were driven demented by. So... I always want to look at the operation of the imagination of time, particularly the fantasies about the past that are really an enactment of the exercise of control in the present. And to loose myself from the chains of such restrictions and to say, I have something to say. And I really applaud people, which can sometimes irritate, and I'm going to use crude terms, that can sometimes irritate more conservative points of view, but it can also ir irritate more liberal points of view. Um, Sometimes when I hear people talk about the Celtic church and they have invented this, this utopia, I just think, where the hell do you think you were you're talking about? Much of what we call Celtic spirituality arose from people who knew that unless you found a way to nurture the earth, you were going to die. It was a way of getting through rather than thinking, oh my God, look at the beautiful green and doesn't that remind us of something? Oh my God. No, it was just like the word for a heather in Irish is which is a word for rage also. And I love that because heather is beautiful. When you go into County Wicklow where there's so much heather in these gorgeous soft hills, you think it looks lovely, but you couldn't grow a crop there and your animals would rip their tongue if they tried to eat there. So no wonder there's gorgeous looking stuff 
is called frech, rage. And so I, there's a, often a, an element of deep pragmatism in, from the past that I think is necessary. And so I, I don't relish this. And I think I'm often the one who's needing to be corrected myself. I don't see myself as the corrector. I see that there is a function of correcting happening in the way that we fantasize about the past and the way that we use that as an element of control in the present. So I, I applaud people who do synodality. I recognize that there can be misdirected faithfulnesses occurring in the room, some of which are about the preservation of reputation rather than the participation in imagination. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of the different voices from the past that you bring into this book, that you bring into conversation with the Gospels, both canonical and apocryphal. You close the book with another one of your poems, which begins with a quote from Ignatius Loyola. I'm wondering if you could read that poem. It's my version of something Ignatius of Loyola said, I should say. <laughs> anyway, the poem is called Hold Yourself Together and Pull Yourself Apart. And the quote attributed by me to Ignatius is a summary of some of the aspects of his spiritual exercise, where he says, in a time of desolation, do not make a life-changing decision and do not go back on a decision made during a time of consolation. Remember the time of consolations. Now here's the poem. Remember that this has passed before and that there will be more days of plenty eventually. Pay attention to your feelings. Keep those feelings sharp. Try to hold yourself together and pull yourself apart. Keep your eyes on the prize that you might never gain. Don't ignore whatever pain is blooming like a flower that you never planted. Occupy your hands with kindness. Remember, you can see, even though this unseeing is remarkable. Mark the places that you're feeling. Mark the spaces where you're needing held. Mark the evenings that are dark and mark the afternoon of coping. Mark the morning that you waken, finding morning has been taken to a different part of Heartland. Remember what has passed before. Pour your body like the sacramental wine. Pour your blood with loving. Something about the opening prayer and also about this closing poem is that I'm cautious of naming God deliberately because I think it's too. I suppose each collect names God in a certain way, but putting a particular name of God is creating a temporary border. And temporary borders are okay, provided they're temporary. And in the place of a book of prayers, a book of asking, that's what prayer means, prier, to ask, I'm uninterested in, in an ideology that excludes anyone for whom their asking takes a different shape or forms itself according to a different address. And from a poetic's point of view, a prayer is in the form of a lyric address, something addressed to a you. And there's a speaker there also. And that, on a level of technique, I think is a tension to try to hold in the shaping of any form of prayer. And I, so I recognize I suppose I recognize a void that I'm trying to circle around, a favorite emptiness, I call it sometimes, when it comes to the question of how it is that we speak about the one to whom we're speaking. 
I thought we would get to apophaticism by the end of this. There we are. Yes, I always forget that word. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. an apophatic. Yes, well, you don't true. want to begin a conversation with apophaticism. <laughs> Let's end it with it. Yeah. Patrick Otuma, thank you so much for coming on the Commonwealth Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Patrick Otuma's new book is Being Here, Prayers for Curiosity, Justice, and Love, and it's available now from Erdman's. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed our theme music and David Dalt did the editing. Remember, if you like what you hear on the Commonweal Podcast, please tell your friends and family to listen as well and rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.